I did, babe. <laughs> That's the first time I think you've ever. <laughs> I've I've accomplished my mission. I can <laughs> die a happy man now. <laughs> I I got him, Metacasters. He said, "Babe, uh, <laughs> done." <laughs> Welcome to the intro. I'm Josh Anderson. I'm Bob Galen. Hey, everyone. I've got a treat for you. We've got a treat for you. Josh takes center stage. Oh, man. It's like, it's, it's like he, he's, he exceeds me probably 10 times on word count. And it's not just the words. It's the quality of the wordage. You're in for a treat. So that's coming up. Next week, Agile Dev Conference, online, virtual. I'm doing yeah. some talks. Oh, nice. Uh, ping me. So uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'm online sharing a wealth of wisdom. Oh, my goodness. To, to those little roots of Agilists who are trying to grow into the sun. And I will, I will fertilize them. With oh my gosh, what have you done? <laughs> what have I done? So, so that's what's happening with me. Josh, what about Kazi? Uh, Kazi, so we're doing our thing every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, helping again, similar. If you like the content we're doing, where we're answering questions, trying to help people with the problems they have today, that's what Kazi's all about. So, we there's a group of 10 or 12 people that show up every Friday and are asking questions and help anybody that is new and comes into the stream says, stream and says, Hey, uh, I've got this problem. There's like a dozen people that jump in and say, Ooh, I can help. Let me help. Here's how I can help. Um, and so it's been fantastic for that community to, to grow. And I really just encourage you to take advantage of it. It's your brainchild and it, it's a wonderful place. So Metacasters onto the episode. Welcome to the Metacast. I'm Josh Anderson. And I'm Bob Galen. Yes. Hey everyone. I'm stuck in my home office. I'm stuck at home still. I've yes. been here for way too long. But, and, we, and we talked about getting together, but then I I failed. So we are remote yet again, and this is all on Josh. Uh, no. But I but but I will aspire to make sure we get back to a regular recording setup. Next we'll week. get there. Yeah. We'll get there. But yeah. don't don't throw yourself under the bus, Josh. The Metacasters okay. are used to being to have you disappoint them. I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> jeez, <laughs> boom. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not sorry. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> so okay. we are we are in AMA mode. Yes. So ask me anything, Josh. And I tell you what, it is good to see our community responding. There are people that reached out and said, "Wow, you really laid down the gauntlet," and uh, I feel like I got to step up. And we got a ton more responses. So number one. Thanks to everybody for stepping up to the plate and giving us the content that we're trying to give back to everybody else. So I really appreciate that. It was fantastic to see. Me too. Me too. And and the first one was a little poultry. Did I say that out loud? Poultry. Uh, it was a little uh, challenge. Yeah, but people, no, pole, not pole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're in trouble. We're spiraling yeah. down that character. <laughs> Already. So let me let me get the let me tee up the first question, Josh. Okay. Yes. 
From Alistair Hughes, I suspect he's from across the pond. Not mm-hmm. sure, but I think so. He has a follow-up question around scaling frameworks or scaling in general. Uh, and it's a two-parter. Okay? I'll feed you part one, but I'll tease you with part. I won't give you part two right away. You mm-hmm. well, Part one, you have, been hi- you have just been hired at a new and exciting startup. Down your alley, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have recruited 20 new developers who have either started or will be starting in the next couple of weeks. So a hockey stick, accelerated recruiting, what, what do you do? What does that scale look like? How do you get them started? Uh, so my approach is always in the Shuha remodel. So they hired 20 new engineers. They're all working together. They all have different experiences. Everybody's assumptions or preconceived notions about what scrum means is likely different in those situations. What I like to do is I like to play it by the book and let's do scrum like by the book and we'll do it air quote the right way. And then as we learn and discover what works best for us, then we'll start to peel back the onion and make the changes that are necessary. The thing that's important with that, that I really learned over the years of having uh, really high growth in building teams is that I assumed that as we were hiring people and during the hi- during the hiring process, I sat with them and I understood like, yes, they get agile, they understand, but not everybody's view of what agile is or what scrum is, is different because everybody's path to now is different. So maybe they've been in a great scrum shop. Maybe they haven't been in a good one and they have some, historical baggage or they've been doing things differently not necessarily wrong but differently so then you're coming in and asking them to work a bit different and that's where i found the real power of doing a hard reset of we're going to do it by the book and take out the way anybody else has done it in the past forget that let's do it by the book so so that way we all have a single reference with which to start from and to go back to whenever there's a question of what should we do And then we operate like that. And as we start to get to a common understanding of what good looks like for us, then if we so desire, we start to make changes. So that's the luck I've had in situations like that. What's your view, Bob? No, I'm going to, I'm actually going to like interview you a little bit and and give you the stage. Is this an Uh, attempt to sway the word count? Um. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, but, okay. but an good. honest, an honest attempt. Okay. So, so twenty. So, 20. how many how many teams would you construct, and um, how would you align them? So, cross functional. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about number of teams, cross functionality, and then talk a little bit about product alignment. Like, mm-hmm. how would you align the teams? So, give a little gotcha. peel the onion there a little bit. Okay, I would likely go. Probably four teams of five each. Ooh. I have found that smaller is better. Now, with that comes an associated increased cost in the supporting roles of product owners and scrum masters. So you have to have the willingness to go to battle for that. As far as product focus, I am a firm believer. Well, are they cross-functional teams? Absolutely. And- so they back are, in front end, I was kidding there, little, Bob. Gosh, oh, okay, Jeez. okay. 
I tell you what, you try and let me have a few words, and then you can't let it happen. I can't. Well, you know I can't help myself, but I'm trying. <laughs> so go go ahead. Yeah. So they are fully cross cross functional, and really, what I desire to build is a team that is a black box that can handle anything that's thrown at them, any complex software problem, and on the other side, out pops an amazing piece of quality software that adds value to the customer. So that means front-end, back-end, database, whatever you need, it's there. And we talked about T-shaped in previous episodes, and that's where this really matters, is having that picket-fence view of the T-shapes where there are complementary skills, and I look for a complementary group of problem solvers, again, that can handle anything that you throw at them. As far as how to to align them within the product, what, what I like to do is I like to have each team own a portion of the product. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to work on only that that piece because the likelihood, so let's say we have the four, four teams, the likelihood that exactly 25% of of the roadmap every sprint breaks out evenly across those four four areas with which those teams have focus it doesn't ever really happen like that so that's where they focus and if there's work there we like to push it towards them because what i like to do is give them a thing to own to really become world class at understanding the problem and and delivering value to customers in solving that problem for them. Now that that doesn't happen overnight. That that takes really digging in and understanding the thing we're trying to solve. Now, again, because the roadmap's not perfect, you're going to have times where you have to work on something that doesn't align with the thing that you've been working on because that's maybe the most important thing for for the company. So that's where having that cross functionality of being able to float really helps. Very cool. Uh I want to hit you with a couple, you know, are there so are there testers? Is there a team lead? And how do you handle architecture? Uh, so I prefer not to use the term team lead because I have found that what happens is that all eyes and all heads turn to that designated team lead whenever there is uncertainty. And I, again, I aspire to build a team of a bunch of people that think as team leads and and so I found that that unintentionally creates behaviors that don't lead towards the team being all in and being able to think about the entire need from, from front to back. So I don't like to go that route. Um, QA is an interesting question. Uh, I, I prefer to not have testers. I, I prefer to have in that cross-functional group of people, someone that is better at quality. What does that mean? Someone that can look at a solution and has that very unique skill of understanding how to break it and like break it in all the crazy ways. Uh, So what I don't like is I don't like to have that tester where this is the person that just tests so the quality folks on the teams that I like to build own the quality across the board, but they don't execute the quality. They support it. It's not that they don't do it, but it's not where we hand it to this person that says, check, that's good. It's how are we going to think about quality? So 
like the the architecture, I want everybody to think about the right way to build things. But it's very helpful to have somebody that's a member of that team that has that very tall stem. I know that's a word you don't like me to use when I talk about the T-shape, Bob. But having a tall stem in building high-quality software, not only just from the quality point, but building it well. And then having that, that, that person help infuse that knowledge across the team. So that's the approach I like to take for all of those other things that need to happen to build software well. I don't like someone to be the single owner, but I like to have somebody that's been there and done that and done it well and can help steer the boat in that direction while helping the rest of the team try and understand how, how they can get better at it. Cool. Got it. So if you hire, like this question is if you inherited them, then Mm -hmm. you might have to make adjustments. Like you may not have people who understood test in the team. So, so you might have to like extend that uh, temporarily while you hired some teaching people who had, who had those skills. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just depends on where, like what part you've played in growing the team from scratch, right? Yep, yep. And I've been super lucky to be able to do it all from scratch and hire like that, but I've also been in the other position where there's a pre-existing team that operates differently. Now, what you won't hear me say is I won't say that they operate wrong or they do it bad. It's just different um, because it was working for them. And so now you're just asking them to operate and think a little bit differently. So that's one of the key things that I use when trying to transform teams is I never tell them they were doing it wrong or they're doing it bad. It's just, Hey, we're going to try and do it different. So you have some old habits, not bad habits. You have some old habits that we're trying to shed and we're going to try and build some new habits. Again, not good habits, not better habits, just new habits that are different that we think are going to help us operate a bit more smoothly. Cool. So you have four teams mm-hmm. and I, w- I want you to dig in a little bit because I heard scrum teams, let's just say scrum teams. Mm-hmm. So now you have cross-functional architecture. So there's a, there's four teams contributing to a shared architecture. Let's just assume that. And then there's four backlogs, right? There's four product backlogs, one per mm-hmm. team. But, you know, I, I want to generalize and say they're all four teams are working on a singular product. Yeah. So, okay. so, so talk about cross-team, I don't know, coordination, integration. What does that look like? So I'm a fan of the Spotify model and that the Spotify model gets whipped around in a million different directions and gets misused a million different ways. But the bits and pieces that I like to pull from the Spotify model are particularly around the naming and the groups and the focus. So the scrum teams are what we would historically call squads. And then what I like to do is I like to have a, a set of chapters that represent the other needs. So we talked about the quality needs. Maybe there's a back-end need or a front-end need where across those four teams, we're trying to ensure that we build the product well and in a similar manner that makes sense. So, so that way, as we talked about, if I need to change my focus from the thing that we've been working on for the past four or six months Maybe the next most important thing is something that another team has been working on and we need to go help them. So having an architecture where it's comfortable for me to go work and quickly pick that up is important. 
So I use the chapter approach, which we've talked about on the podcast a bunch of times. I think we even had some dedicated uh, talks about that. So if that's new to you, go back and listen to that. We can probably put the links in this uh, current, current talk. But one of the things that's important is that, yes, there's a backlog for each of those teams, but I also like to have a backlog for each chapter. So these are the things on the front end that we want to improve over time that aren't necessarily going to move the needle for the customers, but it's that technical debt type work that we like to have. And I like to have somebody that owns the backlog and helps drive that and helps ensure that the most important things are at the top. They partner with their product team, help help the product team to understand why this is important and why we might want to do this before that next feature. So what I found is having a front-end backlog and a back-end, same thing. That lets us understand, here's the work that we need to do to keep the front-end healthy. Here's the work that we need to do to keep the, the, the back-end healthy. And maybe here's even some future-looking work that we need to do to ensure that that feature that product owner A is asking for, that there's a there's a new service that we have to stand up to help make that happen. And that's where that work is housed and managed and um, labeled and built. So I would, that's the architectural side, and I got that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a great way to handle it. I'm thinking chief product owner, master backlog, and then release planning. Do you have, I just want you to react to those things. Do you have such a thing? Do you worry about it? How does that, how do you handle, you know, sort of back functional backlog and release and release planning? Yeah. So I prefer to think of planning in three different layers, uh, three horizons. Oh, in no. fact, in fact, I even talked about this on stream last week. There's a new YouTube video I put out about this. Um, so yeah, there's don't you don't you have like a what is it the the fog or something? Yes, or? there's the fog. Yes, all this good stuff, Bob. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I just uh, so, remember the fog. Yeah, it makes sense, Bob. Although that term again gets thrown around in times when it shouldn't. So everything we talked about has been very focused on the sprint. And here's the things that we're doing in this sprint. One of the things that I borrowed from SAFE that has served me very well is their big room planning. I do it a bit differently, but it's still the same concept that I find tremendous value and the teams I've worked with have found tremendous value in taking the time to look deep into that fog, look deep into that future of the things that we're going to be building over the next six sprints and start to understand that. What I find that that prevents is this very bad pattern of of, of just-in-time planning. So here's this thing we got to build. Oh, no, it's coming up next sprint. we got to scurry and figure out how we're going to build it. And you ultimately build it, but it's not as solid as you would like. And I found that the big room planning gives the teams the visibility into the future, into the things that the product team is asking them to build over the next quarter and start to understand and think about that, about, oh my gosh, how are we going to build that? We've never built that before. We need to rewrite the entire front and all this panic happens. But in reality, it's six sprints away, which is 12 weeks. So there's time 
to have that discovery process and understand the things that we need to build and maybe put an item on the front end chapter backlog and understand here's the thing we need to figure out before we do this thing. Now, one of the most important things that that uh, causes this to not work is the product team works their tail off to build the sprint backlog and then to build a backlog of items that feed into the big big room planning. Where this often falls down is that the engineers are never given the time to dig into the things that are out in the future. So yeah, so hey, there's that thing we got to do in six sprints. Yes, it's there, but I don't have any time to figure it out. I don't have any time to do any of that work. I don't have any time to create a spike. We 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 never create spikes. We never have time to do this. Um, so it's very important to ensure that everybody's bought into making this happen because just creating the list of things you want to do over the next sprints doesn't really solve the problem. In fact, there's times where it makes it worse uh, because people know it's coming, but they never get time to react. So then they so then they just get frustrated. So I found uh, one of the most important keys is to ensure that across the board, we're going to value that big room planning time and make sure that that feeds into work in the upcoming sprints to ensure that there's time to break the work down, really understand it, understand how we're going to build it before it hits in that sprint that, okay, now is go time. we got to build it. Very cool. I think you've covered that. I want to get to part two of Alistair's question, which is, and we you established a really nice baseline there, Josh. So use that and then to extend it. So the part two is over the next three months, so future, they will be mm-hmm. adding another 30 developers. Where would you start from an agile perspective and how would you approach change as the new developers and teams come on board? So so take what you have and scale it up. What would that that would be what, six more teams? So mm-hmm. you add six more teams over the next three months. What adjustments, if any, would you make? Um, I'm going to contradict myself. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. I'm going to tell you I'm doing this. I am going to tell you to change nothing. But you will likely have to make a change. What in the world does that mean? Yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> so what that means is that one of the biggest mistakes I've made when because I've been through this exact same thing is I tried to predict the changes that needed to be made to facilitate us as a 10 person group instead of a sorry a a 10 team group instead of a 14 group I tried to pretend that I knew the problems that we were going to have so I made changes and and we altered the process of how we we were going to do things because I thought I knew what the problems were going to be. I didn't. I was wrong. So what I'm saying... Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Time out. <laughs> Would you repeat that last? What, what did you just say, Joshua? Um, I, I was... I can edit this, but I, but I believe I might have said that I was wrong. Oh, okay. I just wanted to... You I just wanted to highlight that? <laughs> well, I don't hear it that often, so I really wanted to nail it down. It is pretty rare, Bob. So it's good that we take the time to really shine a light on this. <laughs> hey, I'm doing the best I can here. <laughs> so again, it's just like with your product teams. There are times where the most important thing the product team can do is understand that they just have a view of the world and they need to go and understand and talk with the customers and see it in real life. That it's just... 
an opinion on what we should do. It's not grounded in fact. And that's the same mistake that I made. I had a theory and an opinion on how things were going to break. And they broke differently. So I changed processes, which created some chaos. Then those processes didn't work, created more chaos. And then we had to change it again to fix the actual problems that happened. So again, don't change anything. But recognize you're going to have to change something. But recognize you don't know what that is. You don't know how this is going to break. You have thoughts and ideas, and you should be ready. But don't make changes until you have to. One of the things that we've talked about is trying to make the least amount of change needed to solve the problem. But don't solve a problem that you don't have yet. So... We thought, holy cow, we have all these teams. We got to stand up all these cross-functional, all these cross-team stand-ups, all these cross-team things. And, and in the end, we didn't really need it. As problems presented themselves, that's when we reacted and changed the process. But we found that we actually had to change less than we expected. So I over-rotated and created all these new things that were going to solve all the problems because we were now an 80-person team, when in reality, there were like two things we needed to change. So I created unnecessary churn within the org by predicting the problems. Now, that now that doesn't mean you don't use your experience and everything that you learned over your years of building and leading teams to help you solve those problems. But use that experience to help you to effectively react when the problems present themselves. Recognize them sooner. React quickly as opposed to pretending you know all of the answers, which was the unfortunate mistake that I made. So I'm going to add some stuff, Josh, but I'm not – I mean, I agree 100% with you that trying to predict as a leader, and, a, and it's a common problem, we're trying to be ahead, yeah. right? We're we're trying to either get tools ahead or processes ahead or, you know, anticipation. And we really don't, it's, you don't do that well, but I, I think there's a couple things that I would want us to think about. So extend the recipe a little bit. One is onboarding. I think those teams need to be, so you talked early about uh, creating like a, a definition of what good looks like. So you would need an onboarding process of some sort so that you could replicate, you know, as you're spinning up new teams, we need to turn them into uh, teams that understand what good looks like. So somehow onboard them. That could be pairing with existing teams for a period of time or whatnot. But you, you can't have the new teams be disconnected from the original teams. The second thing I would add is uh, be aware of your gaps. So you're hiring 30 new people. Uh, and and the way Alistair says it is they're all developers, but you might even want to change that up and say, I want to hire one tester or something. So be aware of the gaps. You have skill gaps in the original 20, and if you can finesse that in your hiring, then you probably want to finesse that and improve in your hiring. And and that would be T-shaped improvement, if you know what I mean, not, not like hiring a full-time tester. And then one of the biggest areas that I think you have to worry about Remember when you said you have, each team has to have an area to own as, as you're ramping up uh, with these new teams, you have to work with whoever's in product to start carving out new areas. So decomposing areas, finding new product areas, whatever it is, so that, so that you can create that autonomy that you want. Would you buy those? 
Yeah, one of the things that I learned over time was that there's tremendous value in hiring the product owner ahead of the team. And people say, yeah. well, why hire a product owner if you don't have the team? It's very helpful, very handy to have a backlog ready to rock and roll when you hire that team. There's nothing worse than having a team and saying, what are we going to work on? So that's one of the changes that I made over time. And I think, again, following the uh, don't fix it before it's broken uh, was that you'll learn and understand any additional new roles that you need to hire to support yourself at scale. But again, let the organization flex a little bit before you react. Let it see how it's going to heal itself. Understand when things are starting to break, when it's time to hire a hire a new role. Maybe it's time to put in a layer of of managers or directors or whatever you don't have. But let it flex a little bit. Let it let it breathe. Let it understand the problems it's having. Attempt to solve them. And at some point you're going to recognize, okay, the right thing for us to do is add this new role or this new thing, whatever it might 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 be. But let it let it breathe a bit. Yep. I'm with no, I'm with you. I mean you would be working I mean the last point I was making is product areas, but I think you as a senior technology leader would be working with the senior product person, you know, sort yeah. of in, in an anticipation. You wouldn't be doing it independently. You're not spinning up six new teams and not knowing it's not even, it, it's beyond the backlog. You'd be like, they'd have, you'd have a strategy. Right. Those teams would, you know, you and the product be, you know, chief product owner would be planning, like, where are we going to, where are we going to attack? What areas are these teams going to own uh, very early? Uh, so still breathing, but I think there's some high-level orchestration that has to happen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I think we I, I think we nailed Alistair's. I yeah. want to go back um, and let's talk about scaling and leverage everything you said. And and I want you to keep track of word count. I, I'm actually keeping track. I have a counter. Uh, oh, good. Instigated. You're at 1,432 words, and I'm at. Uh, I'm at like 56. So, wow. uh, Rich, I know I'm, I'm taking one for, I'm taking Metacasters. I'm taking one for the team. Do you feel okay? Uh, it's really hard for me. I'm actually talking to my dog right now. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm muting it and I'm getting all my words out to my dog. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Rich, Rich Brents. I think Rich is local. Uh, I've heard management adoption, communication, and removal of dependencies, among other things, are obstacles for successful agile transformations. And then he goes to applying Agile at scale. What do you see the biggest challenge for organizations applying Agile at scale, leveraging our baseline? But this could be bigger than that. That was a relatively yeah. small set of teams. So what do yeah, you it, see as the biggest challenges? So the biggest challenge that I've seen is exactly what I talked about, is that there's this plan to scale And there's this inherent panic that teams go through. We're going to have to change everything. We're going to have to do everything different. And again, that's, that's a mistake that I made. So it's very um, near and dear to my heart. It's not the right words, but it's, but it's, but it's close and it cut deep. (laughs) And I understand the, the uh, drama and churn that I created across the organization of, we need to go to safe or we need this new thing. When in reality, what, we found was that scrum works. And while yes, we did it for 
one team and we use scrum for one team we also found those those same principles worked when you're building a system of teams that work together there's a common set of ceremonies and patterns and how you radiate info and share updates that if you just apply scrum and that's what we did was that we just looked around say hey, scrum's working to organize this group of five, six, seven people to build a thing, what if we use Scrum to organize this group of five, six, or seven teams working on the same thing? And let's apply those same patterns. So we had a cross-squad stand-up. After every planning session, we had cross-squad planning where, guess what? The team stood up and said, hey, here's the thing we, we are going to build Here's what it looks like. Here's the areas that we're concerned about. Here's some of the blockers. Here's how it's going to affect you. Um, and we did that across the team and that helped educate across the organization what's going to happen. So I think what you'll see is that if you take the same patterns and practices and just raise it up a level and view everything as a product, view your group of teams as a product, view your group of, of products as one big product, and you create backlogs for them, and you use the same ceremonies and same patterns, that it works. And I've seen teams that overcomplicate things and create new whatevers to try and solve the problems that have been solved a thousand times. Um, I've, I've really found that when you keep it simple... And do the things that you do every day. Again, that's the thing that we started to say to ourselves is, you know what? We've gotten pretty darn good at Scrum. Let's use the things that we've practiced the most and apply those to this new problem. And let's start there. And that worked really well for us. I mean, I'm good. I mean, you stole my thunder, I think. Oh, biggest man. Biggest challenge, it's organizationally. I think it's leaders trying to solve problems for the team in too big bang of fashion, like here's yeah. this framework, here's this tool, which you said, I think uh, the, the thing to do is grow it from the grassroots up, use patterns that work, keep it as simple as you possibly can, trust your teams, so scale up when the team needs something to be scaled up, rather than scaling from the top down, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of those challenges. Uh, the other thing is organizational complexity. I think I'm going to pick on leaders, but I'm, I really don't mean it that way. But project managers, leaders, managers, they're always trying to solve something. So if I had, if they had 50 teams, they're going to be creating org charts and roles mm-hmm. and hierarchical right. roles and communication processes. Yeah. And by the time they're done, and nothing is, not one line of code has been sort of written yet. They're, they're doing this before the 50 teams come together. And then they lay this vision of what is effective on top of the team. So it's complexity. So there's product complexity and then there's organizational complexity. It's like, just keep it simple. Yeah. Uh, Scrum, and you said this, Scrum works. Scrum Mm -hmm. of Scrums is a simple pattern. Try it. If you outgrow it, then figure out something else to extend it. But that's, that's what I mean by the bottom up. It's the complexity. I mean, the, the, the product development is hard enough yeah. from a complexity perspective. And then in our infinite wisdom, we bring all this crap in, historical crap that we try. We're trying to be efficient and we're trying to engineer an organization and just don't do that. Like trust the trust Agile, trust the simplicity of things. 
so that's sort of the challenge. That's the pattern in the anti-pattern. Uh, we, I remember when I ran into you. So at, at Dude Solutions, I was there, and I remember very early on, I think it was right before you were hired and then right after you were hired, uh, I was talking to a leader there, a senior technology leader. And the two things they wanted to do, you didn't even have a scrum team yet. And the two discussion points were we need an enterprise-level tool and we mm-hmm. need scaled agile framework. Yeah. And the, and the leader was dragging around this huge freaking cardboard cutout with the multi-tiered safe framework yes and and dragging it into meetings i mean i'm not it was pretty damn big it was like four you know four feet by six feet or something and it was like this is where we're going and i remember thinking to myself oh my god the cart is before the horse you may never need that stuff but that's but that's indicative of leaders trying to get ahead of the curve do you and remember all, that? Do you remember uh, that? Uh, very vividly, <laughs> because I was presented with that on on uh, on day one of this is yours. Make it so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, yeah, so that was a bit of uh, an interesting first day, and then I said we're actually not going to do that, and that created a lot of fun. I'm, I'm uh, sure because they were pretty settled on that, right? Yeah, but it was with the best intention. I think that's the one yeah, thing that I, agree. that I want everybody to understand is that the intention is good. And that's one of the really great things I learned while I was at the dude was I was brought in to help solve some of the problems that had been created over the past decade and a half. And as I sat down and spent more time with people that had been there throughout that process, a recurring theme came up and it was that every decision was right when we made it. So based on the information they had at that moment, they made the right decisions, but the company grew so fast that its worst enemy was the success that it was having. And that's a pretty common thing. And that's when you end up hiring some new folks that can help come in and figure out ways to do it differently. Again, not better differently. Um, so, so, so that's one of those things is that you may think this, but managers don't want to make things harder. They want to make things better. The problem again is that, and you see this a lot in the products out of the house is that I am disconnected from how the product is actually used. I have a belief on how it's used improperly or how it's not used or a feature that we could create without actually digging in and spending time with the end users and understanding the problems they do and don't have and addressing those. So that's where I think leaders to Bob's point is that top down change often doesn't work. It's intended well, but it often doesn't work because of the disconnect and it's not intentional dis disconnect. It's not, Oh, well they haven't coded in however many years. They don't know what they're talking about. It's, it's that they don't have the time to live there because there's other problems, other areas that they're trying to solve, yet they feel this responsibility to make things better for, for, for their team. So there's often um, certain reactions that are intended well, but don't deliver on what we had hoped they might. Maybe we leave it there. I, th- I think there's another, I mean, we have other questions, but yeah. uh, I think maybe put it there. I want to emphasize what you just said. There's this there's this notion of assuming positive intent, mm-hmm. which is what Josh was saying, and I think so often, and I do it. I, Medicare, you've heard me a lot, and I 
I sort of revert into this posture and I, and I don't mean to be, and I'm trying to shift myself, but assume positive intent. So don't sneer at these people. Don't make fun at these people. At that point, their hearts are in the right place. It's a really, I'm not just preaching. It's an important distinction. It's a respectful distinction. We don't want to judge. We mm-hmm. just want to sort of meet them where they are, understand, assume positive intent with the best of intentions, but then then help them move, right? Help make the right decisions. And I see very few teams and individuals, coaches even, myself, that do that often enough. We come in and we start judging and nitpicking, et cetera. And it really doesn't help the sort of the transformation. We're talking about scaling and transformation here. I think it, I think it undermines the transformation. And it's certainly not on agile principles, right? Uh, to, yeah. I, think, I think we want to meet them that way. So I just want to amplify that. And with that, Josh, I think we've nailed a couple of questions today. I do. I feel pretty good. We had a nice theme working together. Uh, and like we said at the start of the episode, we have a lot more coming. So it's exciting to be able to address some of these questions and challenges that our listeners have out there. So I look forward to continuing to help them with the problems they have right now. And keep up coming, Metacasters. We want more. So from beautiful downtown Cary, North Carolina. And I'm beautiful. Wait a minute. Don't you dare. Oh, 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 I'm don't sorry. Don't you dare. I jumped, I, jumped, I jumped the gun. Let let's, re- let's, let's, just, let's just spend some time and talk about Fuqua Arena. Okay. Probably the nicest city in North Carolina, if not the universe. Well, it's where you are. So yeah. wherever you are, <laughs> sun comes up every day. Uh, yes. So uh, you are? Bob Galen. And I'm Josh Anderson. Shake. And bake. Take care, y'all. <laughs>